You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome to Fearless. I'm Uncle Jimmy, and this is Whitlock's Weekly Firestarters. And here's a list of what's happened on the show in case you've missed it. On Monday, Jason's going to be discussing the firing of the Miami Dolphins head coach, Brian Flores. And Jason's going to show the outdated nature that we have of evaluating NFL coaches based on race. Mm. As is tradition... The NFL fired a bunch of coaches on Monday morning, a day after its regular season concluded, and ownership looked to blame someone for failing to meet expectations. The Broncos kicked things off on Sunday morning, dismissing Vic Fangio a day after Denver wrapped up its season with a loss to my Kansas City Chiefs. 24 hours later, the Bears dumped Matt Nagy, the Vikings pink slip Mike Zimmer, and most surprisingly, the Dolphins discarded third-year coach Brian Flores. The Flores firing will get the most attention. Miami finished with a winning record, 9-8, and eight, and ended its campaign with a victory over the Patriots. Plus, let's deal with the elephant of the room. Brian Flores is black, and we know how corporate media loves nothing more than to accuse NFL ownership of racism. NFL owners are Trump supporters. What could be more racist than voting for Donald Trump over black icons Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden? NFL owners provided January 6th insurrectionists with the flagpoles and moose heads they used to try to overthrow our government and assassinate Nancy Pelosi. All right, let, let me stop with the sarcasm and make my serious point. In the world of sports, there's nothing more complicated and treacherous than NFL head coaching decisions. That's why there's nothing more bothersome than the simple-minded discussion of these decisions along black-white racial lines. NFL owners want to win because winning further inflates their egos, celebrities, and feelings of masculinity. Skin color is no longer a driving force when it comes to serving an owner's ego on a football field. He's not picking a wife, a girlfriend, or a mistress. He's picking someone skilled at two things. One, motivating young men with lots of discretionary money and free time. Two, managing a team of older men who assist the head coach in motivating young men. The job requires tremendous savvy. Most of the people talking about the job on corporate media platforms, Twitter and Facebook, lack the kind of savvy necessary to be a successful football coach at any level. That's why the discussion of the NFL head coaches is so stupid and fixates on race. There was a time when race played a major role in who could lead an NFL franchise. That time has passed. 
The same way, there used to be a time when the skin color of the quarterback mattered. The skin color of the heavyweight boxing champion mattered. The skin color of the president and vice president mattered. Things have changed here in America. Unfortunately, there are people who have built careers in social media brands pretending nothing has changed and we're still locked in the 1920s and 30s. The truth is, the firing of Brian Flores proves how much things have changed. Flores is out of a job today because the black general manager of the Miami Dolphins, Chris Greer, outpoliticked Flores. Miami-based ESPN NFL reporter Jeff Darlison tweeted the most pertinent information on the Flores firing, writing, quote, the decision to fire Flores can be summed up with one word, relationships. His relationship with Chris Greer and quarterback Tua Tungvaola had deteriorated to a pretty bad place. Along with constant staff changes, owner Steve Ross no longer saw Flores as a healthy fit in Miami. Let me translate that for you. Greer has a better relationship with the Dolphins owner than Flores. A year ago, Greer stayed put at number five in the draft and selected Tuck Tua one spot ahead of Chargers star quarterback Justin Herbert. It was a risky pick. Tua's undersized and a bit injury prone. Greer tried to acquire the number one overall pick from Cincinnati, presumably to select quarterback Joe Burrow. The Dolphins had three first round picks in 2020. Whatever the trade package, it wasn't enough to persuade the Bengals to relinquish Burrow. Greer struck out on Burrow and Herbert. Tua is a disappointment. Greer, like most people, is loyal to his decision. Greer and Tua are a package that Flores seemingly can't enthusiastically support. Greer used his superior relationship with Steven Ross to fire Flores, who has back-to-back winning seasons. Flores is the first Dolphins coach to record back-to-back winning seasons in nearly two decades. What transpired between Flores and Greer, two black men, is commonplace in the NFL. Relationships rule decision-making. At that altitude, relationships are often ruled by ego and personality, not race. It's a game of politics, treacherous politics. The prevailing sentiment is Flores will get a second chance to lead an NFL team, perhaps as early as this offseason. NFL decision makers can easily see what happened to Flores. The media will try to blind sports fans with race. On Tuesday, Jason's going to kind of piggyback off of what he talked about on Monday, and he's going to say, has the NFL's drive to go woke, has it hurt the black NFL coaches? Let's see what he has to say about that. The biggest mistake you can make in modern American media is give black people, particularly black men, the information, context, and advice they need to make successful life decisions. Nothing sparks corporate and social media derision quicker than a well-intentioned black person passing along or promoting a worldview that leads to self-sufficiency and achievement. It's the equivalent 
of teaching a black slave to read in 1821. It's borderline unlawful, a threat to disrupt a long ago established natural order of white Americans as the primary providers and caregivers for black people. It's as innate as a dog lover feeding their golden retriever and taking him for a poop 30 minutes later. It's the way things are meant to be. This natural order explains the yearly media discourse around NFL head coaching vacancies, a discussion we're about to have now that six head coaches have been canned. The overwhelming majority of the conversation focuses on shaping NFL owners into well-intentioned providers and caregivers, or as they're affectionately known now, allies and comrades. <clears throat> According to conventional media wisdom, the road to opportunity and success for aspiring black NFL head coaches is to train Jerry Jones, Robert Kraft, Jim Irsay, Dean Spanos, <clears throat> et cetera, into being better pet owners. It's the same strategy being advocated across corporate America. Black progress cannot be achieved until white people are taught to love and trust black dogs. Rational black men do not see themselves as pets in need of a home. We see ourselves as men capable of providing for ourselves and competing against our peers, regardless of color. Explain the rules of the game and then let us compete. That's all we ask. This is at the root of my frustration with corporate sports media. Journalists and pundits refuse to properly educate aspiring black coaches about the rules that govern high profile leadership positions, such as NFL head coach. The media love to tell you about the outdated rules, the ones from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s that clearly implied black men need not apply. But those rules have been significantly relaxed and or abandoned. If journalists had a legitimate interest in the advancement of black NFL assistant coaches, they wouldn't focus on the Rooney rule, the rule that stipulates NFL owners interview a set quota of black candidates, they would educate the public and assistant coaches on the Lombardi profile. Legendary Green Bay Packers coach Vince Lombardi established the preferred profile of a successful NFL head coach. Lombardi retired from the NFL in 1970. For the past 50 years, NFL owners have been trying to hire the next Vince Lombardi. Lombardi was a Christian authoritarian who attended mass every day. He married at age 27, fathered two kids, devoted his life to coaching football, and became the Packers head coach at age 46. He was a conservative bootstrap patriarch. This morning, I researched the 20 most successful NFL coaches over the past 50 years since the establishment of the Lombardi profile. Here's who made my list. Bill Belichick, Don Shula, Bill Walsh, Joe Gibbs, Tom Landry, Chuck Knoll, Bill Parcells, John Madden, Bud Grant, Andy Reid, Tony Dungy, Dick Vermeil, Bill Cower, Mike Tomlin, Sean Payton, Marv Levy, John Harbaugh, John Gruden, Pete Carroll, and Bruce Arians. Every one of them, except Marv Levy, married young and had children. Levy did not marry until age 68. All of them sustained marriages for at least 20 years, including Marv Levy. In general, successful NFL coaches 
have a conservative worldview, religious faith, build and maintain long marriages, they adopt basic Western civilization values, they're not leftist revolutionaries with communist leanings. They believe in the nuclear family and the American dream. Does black, matriarchal, liberal culture prepare young black men to fit the Lombardi profile, the profile NFL owners have desired for 50 years? Does the culture prepare black men for leadership of any kind? Leftist culture is secular, it's feminine, it wants to disrupt the nuclear family, it sees men as the root of evil, it teaches black men to see themselves as victims. Through their Inspire Change initiative, black NFL players have been releasing national TV commercials titled Where I Come From that promote a liberal worldview and paint black people as victims. This past weekend, Bear Safety Eddie Jackson narrated a 30-second spot that had a black boy state, when I get a job, I'll make $10,000 less than white people with the same skills. Earlier in the season, Lions linebacker Trey Flowers started one with an older black woman stating, if you look like me, you're over-policed, overcharged, and over-incarcerated. Here's a compilation of a few of these television spots. Let me tell you about where I'm from. Where I'm from, the digital divide makes equality nearly impossible. When I get a job, I'll make $10,000 less than white people with the same skills. Where I'm from, we overcome. And soon, there will be many CEOs, CFOs, and CTOs that look like me. Let me tell you about where I'm from. Where I'm from, poverty is a crime. If you look like me, you're over-policed, overcharged, and over-incarcerated. I was sentenced to die in prison for a $28 robbery, but change is coming. Let me tell you about where I'm from. Black neighborhoods are devalued 23% compared to white neighborhoods. 25% of the homes in foreclosure are black-owned. The NFL and National Urban League are fighting to protect affordable housing for all, because we all deserve a home, no matter where we're from. The commercials are Twitter deep and illogical. They're designed to trigger and emote. The actor dancing in the background says all you need to know about the depth of the message. The commercials call into question the seriousness of the people paying for them. Do they represent the mindset of the typical black man? If so, are these men leaders? What percentage of black NFL assistant coaches fit the Lombardi profile? Black men marry at a lower rate than white men, divorce at a higher rate than white men, and father illegitimate children at a higher rate than white men. That's a lethal combination that undermines black leadership. Instability at home and baby mama drama impact work performance. Marriage is just as much a business decision as a heart decision. Does corporate media explain that when discussing the racial disparity among NFL head coaches? Is our candidate pool sabotaged by a culture that pulls us the opposite direction from the preferred profile? Victims aren't great leaders. Neither are men trapped in family dysfunction. Maybe our adoption of liberal culture is the real systemic racism blocking our path forward. Joe Paterno, 
And yeah. you, you had some, in your statement about going into the Hall of Fame, you credited Joe, you thanked Joe, but I know that you and Joe had a complicated relationship uh, when you were at Penn State and maybe even post uh, playing days at Penn State. Walk us through your relationship with Joe Paterno, how it evolved from a player to a former player, and then how you feel about Joe now that he's passed away and time has passed. Yeah, we did have a complex relationship. Um, I felt like I felt like Joe was against me just based off of me being me. And I never could understand that because I've always been me. So if you're recruiting me and you want me to come to your school and I've met you and we've talked and I felt so highly about Penn State and Coach Paterno that I committed early and never took a, an official visit to another school, never never thought about backing out on my commitment. I, I got a tattoo of the Nittany line on my arm, my at the end of my junior year. So there was a lot of, of, to me, a lot of commitment early on that showed my buy-in to, to him as a coach and to the school. Once I got there, it was like who I was bothered him. And, and, and I think what it was is I have a strong family unit. My mother and my father taught me to live in my truth and to be brave and be unapologetic about who I am. God is on my side and anything that, that comes against me that isn't of him is not going to prosper against me. And I always took, I always took that as literal as possible. So I'm not going to lie. Um, I'm not going to fabricate the truth. I'm going to be brutally honest and I'm going to be who I am. And in some cases, that's great. And in some cases, it's not so great. Uh, I don't think Joe liked that I was I was not afraid to say what the truth was if I was asked a question. I didn't seek attention with I've never been one to seek attention, but if you're in my space, I I am who I am. And, and a lot of people feel as though, you know, even you and I have had our moments, right? With the way my personality is, I'm, I'm an outgoing person and, and the way I, I, but, but I don't, I don't pull no punches. So every once in a while it could get under your skin or it could bother you. And, and Joe was bothered and, and I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. Uh, but as, as time got, you know, wore on, I started understanding more from his perspective and his angle, a lot of why he didn't like it. Uh, when you bring that, when you bring the type of personality I bring, it can bring good and bad, as I mentioned, and that can play a part in how a game plays out a game plan for a game, uh, how they approach me in the game. There's a lot of things that can take place from a coach's perspective as to why you don't want players um, being so forthright or forthcoming and candid about, you know, what it is that's going on. So as we got older, we, we, we came together at one point in time and we, we made amends. And I can honestly say um, I'm happy 
that that I didn't have to look at him and in his death and appreciate him in his death, wishing that I had an opportunity to let him know how much I appreciated him while he was living. And we did have one of those moments and he let me know how much he appreciated me. And the value of that still sticks with me to this day at a very, very high level. So part of, you know, our conversation in in my view, because I, I remember I went back and reread one of the Sports Illustrated stories about you, and and I felt like or feel like Paterno has this vision of the Penn State program, and there's no names on the back of the jerseys. The uniforms are very vanilla. Penn State is always the focus. And I think he's fearful or he was fearful of any player that whose personality, fame, attention, whatever, became bigger than the program. And, and to me, it's like, hey, man, uh, there are certain guys that are a perfect fit for the old school, Miami, the U, and that's not Penn State's program. Go play at the U if, if you want to be one of those. And I'm not knocking the U because Ray Lewis, Ed Reed, Michael Irvin, I love those guys. I mean, really authentically love them, think they're great. And, and get the U, but the U has a different personality than Penn State. And so I, I was just wondering, did you ever think like, and you said you committed to Penn State, didn't take any other official visits, but perhaps for your personality and just quite frankly, your level of talent, because you're one of the most unique to at six foot two, six foot three with your athleticism and, and your heart for the game. Because there's a lot of guys with uh, your body, your physical gifts, their personality is more Jane than Tarzan. You actually got the right aggressive personality for all your talent. And, and anyway, I was just wondering if you ever thought like, I would have been a better fit at a different program than the vanilla Penn State program. I would have been, I would have been dope in any program. If I would have went to Miami, it would have been, it would have been, it would have been curtains at Miami. If I would have went to Florida State, it would have been curtains at Florida State. You know, you got to keep in mind coming out of high school, I was the player of the year. I was the parade player of the year. I was, I was, I was the player of the year where you were from, where anybody else was from. That was the, the distinction that I had took while I was in high school. And that was because I took pride in playing the game at a high level. It's interesting that you asked the question. I was talking to my high school coach yesterday. We had a great conversation. My high school coach is more like, like Joe Paterno than he is, you know, any of those coaches that, you know, would have been out there. Now, if I would have went to Florida State, that's no different than a Joe Paterno. Um, so to me, when I chose Penn State, it was because the structure of, of football, the the backbone and, and the, the foundation of what I became as a football player was based off of the principles and the values of what Penn State represented. 
And and so that was why it was a natural pick. I related to that coaching staff so well. It wasn't it wasn't really a whole lot that I needed answered. You know, I became very close with guys like Kajana Carter and OJ McDuffie and uh, T- uh, Terry Killens and 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 Takio uh, Tayoga. Excuse me, Tayoga Jackson. I got to know so many awesome dudes while I was in that that process that lived nearby that it just it just felt right to me. It didn't feel foreign until I got there. Then once I got there and it was almost like it's like, Joe, do you want me to treat you like you're my dad or do you want me to treat you like my coach? Because right now I'm a tad bit perplexed as to what our dynamic is. I got a dad at home. He served this country. He, he serves his community to this day as, as an ordained minister. My dad is a great man. I don't need you to be a father figure to me. I need you to be a guide and a coach. That's what I need. And, and I think that that was kind of, we had just fundamental philosophical differences even though I was young and he he's he went off on on record saying LeVar thinks he knows too much and if LeVar wants the keys to the car here he's going to have to do it my way I can remember the quotes that he was giving you know he felt like my way was was a revolutionist style of doing things and he said in that very article that you probably read in sports illustrated if lavar wants to be a revolutionist lavar be a revolutionist in exile now i'm going into my last year of school perceivably my junior season and i'm the the highest rated football player in the country in college and I had my head coach instead of saying LeVar should be winning the Heisman or LeVar should be this or LeVar should be that. He's he's not allowing me to go to the the Playboy All-American, right? The 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 photo shoot because it's good a call. All-American. Good call. That was a very good call. I would have okay. made that same decision. Yeah, okay. good, good I'm call not there. Do, <laughs> I'm not able to do that. I'm not I'm not able to do interviews. I'm I'm like everything was shut off my last year like things were shut down for a while and it's like to me it was like we're here now like what like it was almost like a an all-out campaign to boost courtney and diminish me and i never understood it i never understood it as as things evolve i've always been what I believe to be the best teammate that you could possibly have. I'll give you the shirt off my back. I'll give you the shoes off my feet. And I still, to this day, will am that same type of way. And and whatever it is you need from me support-wise or, or, or help-wise, I'm going to always be available. I never thought I was too good. I never, you know, took caution and, and, and just dismissed it. I always was present and I always wanted to show my coaches and my teammates that that's who I was and that's who I wanted to be um, to my teammates. But I don't know. I just the way I was, the attention that I got and the the reception that I would always receive from the Penn State community was so intense. I just think that, you know, it rubbed Joe the wrong way. 
Now, LeVar, I believe in that Sports Illustrated article, you insinuated uh, they couldn't win a national championship the way Joe Paterno was going about it. And you wondering why he was a little upset? <laughs> hey, hey, what, what does that cover say, Whitlock, on, on the left side underneath my name? I can't see it. You got to tell it me. It says number one. Fires up number one Penn State. Number one. We were rated number one by, by Sports Illustrated. You know what we ended up ranked that year? Ended? I don't know. I don't even remember what we ended up. I don't even know that we ended up being ranked at the end of the year with with, with, with a team with a future number one overall draft pick and number two overall draft pick in college. And we lost three games that year. Three. So was I lying? Like, you could get upset that I said it. But I sit. I, I did not. I did not offer that information unsolicited. I did not offer it. I didn't go into the interview and say, "I want to make sure I make this clear in this interview that we won't win anything because Joe isn't handling things the way that he needs to handle them." I didn't do that. They asked me, "Will we win a national championship?" And I said, "No, we won't." Because we don't play our best players. We don't play our best players. Like, that's that's just, that was reality. I, I 100% shouldn't have said it. I shouldn't have said it, Wit. But they asked me the question, and I told them the truth. I didn't lie. I told the truth. We won't win it because our best players, some of our best players, are on the sidelines. They're not on the field. And I know what that felt like because there was a point in time where I was better than the guy that was in front of me and I was on the sideline. The one thing that I regret about those that interview in particular and the things that I said, my truth was my truth. And I respected myself for being truthful, but I didn't take into consideration the rite of passage. I thought it was about winning and winning was what's most important. Whereas Joe had a way of doing things and it was earn your keep, earn your respect, earn the trust and, and that you will be honored. There'll be an honor connected to you doing it the way that he structured it to be done. And while I may not agree with that fully, because if you're going to bring guys there that are five-star, four-star guys, they should have the opportunity to challenge for the spot that they were recruited for. But ultimately, that love and respect that I have for the guys that were in front of me when, when I came there is very high. And, and I, would, I would be remiss if I felt like it was okay to take Aaron Collins's job. Like, doesn't make sense now. It, it doesn't compute the right way now. And it was a time to learn. I came in and I learned so much from him and Matt Rule that going into my sophomore year, I dominated. 
And I dominated because I was able to watch and learn and take notes and diagnose film even better than what I was taught in high school. So there was a process. And I, I, I admit, I, I, I regret some of the things that I said in truth and in just it just wasn't wise to say what it was that I was saying because there was a bigger picture in some regards on the other side of it. So that was just immaturity. It was immaturity. On Thursday show, Jason's going to discuss the fact that ESPN has been surprisingly silent on the transgender swimmer bender from Penn. And we're talking about Leah Thomas. Oh my goodness. Leah Thomas is why I have so much animus towards ESPN, the self-described worldwide leader in sports. Thomas is the biological man competing on the University of Pennsylvania women's swimming team. His parents named him William. He originally competed on Penn's men's swimming team. Leah is the most disruptive athlete, perhaps, in the history of American sports. He is Jackie Robinson, Muhammad Ali, and Colin Kaepernick rolled into one gender transition. Thomas is crushing his new peers in the pool. He's pissed off his female teammates. They've been forced to anonymously complain to Outkick.com and the Washington, Washington Examiner about Thomas's illogical and immoral invasion of their sport. Yesterday, an anonymous pen swimmer spoke to the Washington Examiner, a defunct newspaper turned conservative website. Uh, the anonymous swimmer said, quote, <clears throat> yeah, it's definitely really stressful. It definitely weighs on my mind a lot because it's definitely had hard to overcome the feeling of feeling completely overlooked as if the NCAA just does not care about us at all. And nobody cares about how this is affecting us at all. It just seems like if you say anything, everyone is just going to attack you and call you transphobic. And it's not even true. We just want to have what we were promised by joining the swim team, which is fair competition and equal opportunities. It's been really frustrating because we all agree, and I have yet to meet anyone or talk to anyone who thinks what is going on is okay. So I'm unaware of Leah Thomas's name ever being uttered on ESPN, the self-described worldwide leader in sports. I can't find his name or a story mentioned anywhere on ESPN.com. Look at this graphic. You punch in Leah Thomas, you're more likely to get Demarius Thomas, Derek Thomas, Doubting Thomases, but no Leah Thomas. A week ago, the Ivy League released a statement supporting Leah Thomas. In part, the statement said, the Ivy League, quote, the Ivy League reaffirms its unwavering commitment to providing an inclusive environment for all student athletes while condemning transphobia and discrimination in any form. So I think this through. The richest, 
And Ivy League schools are the richest. I think Harvard's endowment is like $52 billion. The most powerful, they produce, the Ivy Leagues produce presidents and powerful politicians the way I produce farts. The most influential, all these other schools follow the lead of Ivy Leagues, of the Ivy League. They are clearly the most influential universities in America. So the Ivy League issued a statement defending Leah Thomas. ESPN said nothing, pretended it didn't happen. Now, Thomas is not the first biological boy to compete against girls, but he is the most important, the most polarizing, and the highest profile. In a normal world, ESPN would be analyzing and discussing the impact of Thomas's swimming career twice as much as the network debated whether Tim Tebow kneeling in prayer was offensive, whether Kaepernick kneeling in protest was offensive, whether Michael Sam kissing his boyfriend on draft day was the greatest thing to ever happen on national TV, whether 65-year-old Bruce Jenner transitioning to Caitlyn made him the greatest woman in the history of America. And ESPN even debated whether George Floyd dying from a combination of drugs and police misconduct, whether or not that was the greatest death, assassination, the most important death of anybody since Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King. ESPN debated and talked about all of that. Leah Thomas, nothing. Women's sports, women's collegiate sports are being transformed and quite possibly destroyed right before our eyes. ESPN is ignoring this dramatic change. Michael Sam's kiss, that was a bigger deal. Cowardice is the only explanation. The deafening silence throughout corporate media makes me think of the 1996 Tupac Shakur song, The Hearts of Men. I can't lie, I used to love Tupac's music. I used to listen to it virtually every day. Hearts of Men is a hyper-masculine song that warns men about the wickedness and weakness of many of their peers. When I think about Leah Thomas, his dominance of female swimmers at Penn and in the Ivy League, and how corporate media are intentionally ignoring this story, I think about the wickedness and weakness of men. I'm embarrassed for men. I'm embarrassed by how far we have fallen. Men used to take pride in protecting women. You guys remember uh, just last week, I believe it was, TJ Moe on this show talking about how men were wired to protect women. We used to be wired that way. I think we have that clip. Someone re refresh my, let's play the clip of TJ talking about how men are actually wired. To. If you want to be treated like a man, you have to be willing to handle it like a man. So I think what's happening is here is anybody who's smart enough to distinguish that men are wired this way to protect 
All you have to do is say, I want to be treated just like the men, and then say something like this, knowing everybody's going to come to your rescue. So you have an added layer of this that a man would never have. So you will never be treated equally to a man. You will be treated better. None of us, Jason, you and I could never throw something out there and have the world come running to our protection. That's where it's evil. I actually think it's an intentional manipulation to one of the wonderful things about men, and that is that we are wired to protect women. Now, instead of being wired to protect women, now we take the most pride in protecting our social media brands, our paychecks, and our popularity with the in crowd. Social media has led us to believe that protecting career criminals is more important than protecting college women. ESPN talking heads would riot rather than remain silent over law enforcement's treatment of George Floyd, Jacob Blake, and Rayshard Brooks. Yesterday, we released a video spoof mocking the deification of Floyd, Blake, and Brooks. The spoof points out the absurdity of the attention, concern, and love we lavish on men who spent their lives wreaking havoc on others. Professional athletes, ESPN broadcasters, politicians, celebrity entertainers, and alleged civil rights activists pretend they defend Floyd, Blake, and Brooks as a way of being a voice for the voiceless. A voice for the voiceless. Every TV network and media platform in America has discussed the plight of George Floyd and company. College female athletes? <laughs> we'll leave their struggle to fringe websites. Did Floyd, Blake, and Brooks earn a louder voice than female athletes? Why are male athletes silent about the plight of their female peers? LeBron James, he has a daughter. All of the activist athletes either have daughters, they have female nieces, cousins, sisters, and friends. Steven Jackson, Matt Barnes, they want all the smoke. But they don't want this kind of smoke. They don't want to address this. Ryan Clark, Randy Moss, the guys that love to cry on ESPN. They love all the smoke. They're tough guys. They are outspoken. They are a voice for the voices. Randy Moss put on a tie with all the names of every victim of alleged police misconduct. He's a voice for the voice. He's courageous. Man's on TV. <sighs> Kaepernick, Malcolm Jenkins, all cowards, all of them. They're all out building social media brands off pretending to be these courageous, outspoken activists being voices for the voices. Randy Moss is sitting on TV crying because John Gruden said Dee Marie Smith had big lips. Randy Moss has three daughters. They are and or were athletes. He should have an opinion on what's transpiring in women's sports. So should all the other athletes, male and female, who appear on ESPN. Maybe they think what Leah Thomas is doing is great, the greatest thing in the world. I'd love to hear their reasoning. We've listened to them second guess and condemn police officers the past six or seven years. They know nothing about policing 
but talk about it endlessly. It's sickening. What has happened to the hearts of men? They have shriveled and disappeared. Our hearts pump Kool-Aid. We spend our energy and emotion and resources fighting to protect criminals who resist arrest, and we have no genuine concern for victims of crime, the safety of law enforcement, or competitive spaces reserved for women. I wanna be crystal clear here. In 2012, I lost a family member I loved to what I believe and what my family believes was police misconduct. His name was Anton Butler. He had a criminal record that included drugs and guns. I'm not unsympathetic to George Floyd, Jacob Blake, and Rayshard Brooks, but I'm also not an idiot. I have far more sympathy, concern, and passion for law-abiding citizens who are harmed by crime or have their hard-earned opportunities undermined by biological men who feel like women. As Tupac would say, I'm on this side, the real side. On the real side, what Leah Thomas is doing is Stop the Press is Newsworthy. It's worthy of vigorous debate and analysis. It could change the course of history and undermine the rights of biological women. ESPN isn't man enough to enter the discussion. America isn't man enough. We're a nation run by cowards. On Friday, Jason's going to kick straight off the head and he's going to go unscripted. And he's going to do a mono regarding the firing of the Houston Texans head coach, David Culley. Yes, that's right. Dun, dun, dun. Another one bites the dust. <laughs> you got to hear this. One. Oh, the Houston Texans last year took one for the team. They hired a coach, a career assistant, a guy that spent... I believe 40 some odd years as an assistant coach and promoted him beyond his competence level. They didn't believe in the hire when they made it. They looked at it for a year and said, you know what? This dude doesn't have it, what it takes to be an NFL head coach. And so we gave him a chance. He didn't catch lightning in a bottle. We're going to move on. And this hiring cycle, we're gonna hire someone we believe in. And so Dominique Foxworth, Acho, they're sitting on TV and they wanna, they're biting their tongue because all the reports, because again, the NFL is caught in this PR game set up by social media, set up by the idiots that ESPN platforms to talk about these issues. And they walk in and they're playing the PR game, so they leak out, hey, we're gonna hire uh, Gerard Mayo, black assistant coach with the New England Patriots, or we're gonna hire Brian Flores, the guy, the black coach that just got dumped by the Dolphins. And so that satiates Acho and Dominique Foxworth, and we're gonna hold our tongue. We, we, think, we think David Culley was mistreated because he was black, but, but we're not gonna say so strongly because they may, they may hire a black coach following in behind him. It's all a political PR game. The NFL has been dragged in 
to playing the corporate public relations, social media, uh, PR. They, they've moved away from reality and doing what they actually want to do. And so David Cully gets canned because they didn't believe in him from the very start. He's not a charismatic guy. He's a lifelong NFL assistant coach. There's nothing wrong with that. The guy had a great career and is having a great career and will probably be hired to be an assistant coach again because he is a good soldier as an assistant coach. The Texans just reached the conclusion after he, he's not a head coach. Who Maybe he could have developed into one, but again, he's 63. And so they look, he ain't got it, we're moving on. We want to hire someone that can invigorate this team, inspire these guys. Look, I can't even take a huge dump on the job David Culley did because the times that I watched him, when he knocked off the Tennessee Titans earlier this year, I was halfway impressed. But when you put all this PR pressure on a league and on a team, to hire a coach that they don't really believe in. It was dead men walking day one. And Acho Foxworth and all the other race baiters on ESPN and throughout social media, they're the reasons David Culley got a job from people who didn't really believe in him. And the same thing could happen again because everybody keeps throwing out Eric Bieniemy's name. And everybody, oh, Eric Bieniemy's been mistreated, and racism must be the only reason why he hasn't gotten a head coaching job. And the facts are that Eric Bieniemy interviewed, I believe, in Houston last year, and they didn't hire him. It wasn't because he was black, they hired David Culley. He is black. Eric Bieniemy clearly struggles in these interviews. Clearly, he's doing something in these interviews that's turning people off. I believe he's had, I think he's had close to a dozen interviews with different teams over the last two or three years. He can't make the sale. There's a lot of people like that. I'm reminded of one of my favorite episodes of The Sopranos. And I believe it was uh, Junior Soprano had talked Richie uh, April into trying to make the case why Junior should replace Tony or they should whack Tony. And Junior's like, April's not the guy. He couldn't make the sell. Not good enough. He doesn't have that it factor. He doesn't have that charisma. People don't want to line up behind him. That's what happens with a lot of these assistant coaches. They don't have that it factor. They don't command the room in a way that will make a difference. And so a lot of times what, what's going on with ownership is like, can this guy reach these 53 players in my locker room, 75, 80% of them are black, can they reach and motivate them? And what has been happening? It's like 
there's been tended to be more white coaches that can reach black players, motivate them, hold them accountable than perhaps black coaches because black coaches are put in an incredibly awkward position because we continue to play the race card on them. Try being an employer or a decision maker uh, as a black person and try managing black people who come in, <laughs> I want special treatment because I'm black and we both black and I want to cut corners. And you know what? I can second guess you and I can do what I want to do and I don't have to pay attention to what you want done. I can half ass it because we black and you're going to give me the hookup. Try walking in those shoes. I tried to explain it as it relates uh, during Donovan McNabb's career as an NFL quarterback, being in a leadership position and what Terrell Owens did to him as a black quarterback that never happens to a white quarterback. Go find me the black wide receiver other than Antonio Brown here recently, he just tried to pull that BS on Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers dumped him. But T.O. trying to demand from Donovan McNabb when they were in Philadelphia together, you need to go in there and, and tell them they need to pay me and give me my money. And he went public with that. Find me where that goes on that a black wide receiver does that to a white quarterback does not happen. Those expectations aren't there. So again, everybody wants to talk about ownership, 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 and what ownership is and isn't doing. And you'll never hear one of these players say, I can remember when, when uh, Keyshawn Johnson was with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and threw Tony Dungy under the bus. I was in the locker room questioning uh, Keyshawn Johnson about it. Keyshawn Johnson threatened me. Never forget it. Calling out Tony Dungy. I'm like, wow, this is the kind of support a black coach gets from his black players. Then John Gruden comes in, they win a Super Bowl. John Gruden, uh, Ba embarrassed, emasculated Keyshawn Johnson on the way to that Super Bowl. And Keyshawn had to sit around and wait 15 years later to call John Gruden racist when, when the email comes out about uh, John Gruden and Demora Smith big lips. See, none of this ever gets discussed. Everybody, all these simple-minded idiots, you know, trying to protect their paycheck, never discuss the one. Maybe they're not even aware of it. They're too stupid. No self-awareness. Not really students of the game. But all this stuff is far more complicated than what these guys are letting on and are able or capable of discussing. David Culley got cut loose 
because they didn't want to hire him in the first place. And he's got that position because these idiots pressure owners to do things they don't want to do. The players in that locker room don't know how to properly support the black coaches that they say they want. They tend to respond better and have more respect for white leadership than they do black leadership. Everybody knows, or a lot of people know this, talk about it privately, but when a camera comes on and they're worried about their social media feed, it never gets discussed. How do black employees, players, respond to black leadership? Second guess everything. Expect some kind of special treatment. Not willing to give, not willing to truly be appreciative of the opportunity they've been given and back it up with the kind of consistent effort and performance that shows you actually respect the leadership. None of it ever gets discussed. But that's why we call this show Fearless, and that's why I'm the host of the show, because we're going to talk about it all. Hey, listen, thank you all for listening. I'm Uncle Jimmy. Go to YouTube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Hit that like button. Hit that subscribe button. Join the Fearless Army and get the new Fearless swag gear that you see me having on right here. Oh, that's right. Y'all can't see me, can you? Take my word for it. It looks good. Go to the website. Check it out. Hey, man, thank y'all for watching. Thank y'all for listening. Thank y'all for getting us to 100,000 subscribers in six months. Go ask somebody. That ain't been done, man. That That's unheard of. Congratulations to Jason. Thank you all. Hey, man, make it happen. Let's keep it going. Thank you.